Hi there, Mike. In this episode, you talk with Adrian Howard about the benefits of experience testing with your employees, whether it's their onboarding experience to annual surveys. Yeah, you know, I, I really enjoyed the conversation with him. Adrian's been in the industry for a long time, and so he had a lot of insights on you know, the pluses and minuses of internal testing, but also he, he had some, some nice suggestions on what to do to make it successful. Mike, I know you like to garden. Maybe you'll know the answer to this. Why are surveys so good at gardening? Oh man, Nathan, I don't have a clue. They have a knack for digging up deep-rooted opinions. Oh my. Did, did you write that one yourself? Yeah. All right, with that, we should get to the interview. Welcome to Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from User Testing, where we bring you candid conversations and stories with the thinkers, doers, and builders behind some of the most successful digital products and experiences in the world, from concept to execution. Welcome to the Insights Unlocked podcast. I'm Nathan Isaacs, Senior Manager for Content Production at User Testing. And joining me today as guest host is Michael Mace, User Testing's Vice President and Publisher of the Center for Human Insight. Welcome, Mike. Thanks. Great to be here. Our guest today is Adrian Howard. Adrian helps companies build effective teams and great products with quiet stars. He's at his best solving problems where product, agile, and UX intersect. And you'll find him working with companies of all sizes, coaching leaders and practitioners in the messy spaces where strategy, research, and delivery overlap. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Hi, nice to be here. To tee up our conversation about applying research on internal projects, we asked participants in the User Testing Contributor Network their thoughts on the pros and cons of internal research. Here's what they said. What could be some of the processes, cultures, and norms that could be tested with the employees where you work? Employee surveys regularly to see where any improvements could be made. Um, maybe like a an anonymous um, like benefits pot where people can make suggestions on like staff benefits. So potentially like, you know, health insurance or a maternity package. We redid our website. The user journey makes a lot more sense. We've got much better uh, and up-to-date client case studies and testimonials, but that could probably be tested a little bit more objectively in, in some ways as well. The benefits would be that if, that um, you would increase um, staff morale. Um, there would be more staff loyalty because the staff will feel looked after and feel valued. I've worked for a lot of companies where I haven't felt valued or listened to. Staff are more likely to like trust their employer and feel valued, and therefore like be less likely to leave the company. And happier staff means improvement in work. It would just give management and the bosses have a better idea of what's going on and how people feel, you know, also how I test, you know, people's stress levels and sort of how they feel about their workload and, and purpose and what they're doing and joy and things like, you know, happiness and fulfillment and things like that. What do you think would be among the challenges or difficulties with user testing internally at your organization? I guess some people might worry that it's not anonymous um, or their names will be included, so they won't be honest. Well, I mean, when I was fairly new at, at the business I work at, we did have an internal staff survey um, where people were asked for their candid and honest feedback. Um, and it was anonymized, but, you know, the managing director at the time, who thankfully is no longer the managing director, sat everyone down and, and, and tried to go through all the answers and, and 
almost in front of everyone trying to decode who'd said what and kind of defeated the whole process of anonymity. That's the only one I can think of. I can't see any negative or challenges on actually asking feedback from employees. So, Adrian, what did you think as you watched that video? Did anything stick out to you? Um, the fear of being identified that they mentioned uh, really spoke to me. That's something I've seen with internal research because it's, um, it's a really valid fear. I think many folk who've done research outside of consumer products will have experienced that when uh, working with external clients. Honest answers can hurt people when the folks in positional power do not like those answers. So how, how do you, how do you fix that? Um, are there, are there standards or, or ways to deal with it? Um, I think there's, I think there's all the things we should be normally doing with research anyway. It's like kind of, we, you know, we on anonymize our, our, uh, participants and their feedback, um, do all the, the normal ethical research practices. Um, but it is, I think, a little bit harder for people to believe that when you're working with your coworkers. Um, things I've seen that can sometimes help with that is sometimes bringing, bringing in someone external, somebody who has a, a little bit more of a believable firewall between, between themselves and the rest of it. But I think the, the approach I, I more often take and prefer is to, um, get the participants involved in the way that that feedback appears to the rest of the organization. So it's, um, you're getting explicit consent about this is, this is the language that we'll use and the things that we will say to the rest of the organization, uh, and how we will phrase it. Uh, I've like, for example, worked with, um, teams. So we produce like a, you know, a, um, a, part of the the output of the research we've done on some working practices we produce a kind of team artifact that talks about these are the areas that we're working on this is what we want to improve and this is why uh, and that is something that the team sign off on before we give it to management yeah nice so so a lot of it's about having the right procedures in 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 establishing trust you know, I think th to me, the most chilling part of that video was at the end where the, the person was talking about, well, the boss was trying to, you know, pick it apart to be able to figure out who said what. And that, you know, it's not just bad process, that's bad management, you know, of, of violating a, pro a commitment that you'd made to employees. And I got to assume any boss who does that word is eventually going to get around to the rest of the company. You know, it's it's not, and, th and then it's not, a matter of just screwing up your internal research. It's a matter of screwing up your internal culture and, and just not having trust within the company. And, and that's ultimately, it's just bad management to do that sort of thing. The other thing is actually seeing that happen is, is research in of itself. You're observing a behavior that that's giving you feedback on what happens in that culture. Um, I, I remember doing, I mean, this wasn't a research activity. We were doing a, you know, a design studio charrettes type activity where I don't know if you've experienced one of those, but you kind of, everyone independently comes up with their own designs and then they mash them up together and, and, uh, do another round, try and pick the best bits. And what I saw in that, cause the, the kind of, you know, the CEO was involved in that process is we did a first round of lots of different results 
And in the second round, everyone had riffed off the CEO's idea. Everybody in the room had riffed off the CEO's idea. And that that tells you something about the power relationship and the expectations of that group. Yeah. Uh, and we had lots of interesting conversations afterwards um, that came out of seeing that behavior and seeing out how it was hurting creativity and the rest of the organization. Very interesting. You know, I'm 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 almost tempted to say you could you could ask in the research, hey, do you trust that these results are going to be handled appropriately or not? And just uh, hearing what the answer would be to that question would be interesting in and of itself. Yeah. Um, you know, as as an industry, we've traditionally thought about experience research, human insights um, with external people, either customers or prospects, the people who buy our stuff or the people that we're trying to work with who are outside the organization. What are the benefits of applying that sort of methodology and discipline to internal stuff? Uh, and, and what are some of the places you can use it? Um, I mean, for me, we, we research our internal organization for, for all the same reasons we research our external customers. Because we have questions we don't know the answer to because we want to discover how they do things so we can help provide the service and products that help them more because we want to understand whether the, the services we provide are actually doing the job that we want them to do because we want to, want to understand them. And um, understanding the people and systems we work with is just as important as understanding our external customers, potentially even more important because those people and systems are what will eventually affect our external customers or our end users. You can do the best research in the world, but unless that research is done in a context that, that makes a, a change in, in the environment that our external customers get to experience, it's, it's just waste. And when you understand your org, your org as well as you understand your external external customers, you can get so much more done. Um, example, I, I had a fascinating chat a few years back with a woman who had built up a little portfolio of jobs to be done canvases, uh, one for her boss and one for all her peers and uh, one for all her reports. And, and this was just something she referred to all the time when she was trying to get work done in the organization, you know. She knew that, you know, the salesperson's job was addressing this market and was being measured by these things. Uh, and so when she was trying to push in a strategic direction that didn't address that, she knew that she, she was going to get no support from that salesperson or, and potentially conflict there because they had a different set of goals from, from her set of goals. And that was just super valuable to her to let her see where problems were going to be coming to ahead of time. Uh, and and to start laying a groundwork to address those issues. So user testing's uh, people team, or as we used to call it, the HR mm -hmm. team, um, has has done some research with employees over the years. Um, and we'll put links uh, to those examples in the show notes so people can check them out. So, so I do, and we've talked some about the benefits of internal research, the things people can do with it. What are some of the concerns or challenges that you need to consider if you're going to be doing this sort of stuff? I'm... One I've hit a few times, and it's it's almost the, the, the classic problem with research, is just finding time and resources for it. Um, it's it's yet another, um, you know, if if you are in a setup where you're thinking in terms of like projects and studies and that kind of thing, it's yet another project and yet another study. It's, it's yet another 
chunk of time and resources and, and money that's being spent on a thing. Um, and justifying that can sometimes be difficult. I often see people getting more value out of the trying to approach it in a more kind of incremental way. Um, something that they're always doing as a background task rather than it being being a, a special thing. I mean, like the woman I talked about earlier, the one who, who built little chopped-down campuses for all her co-workers and peers. Um, you know, she didn't do that as a separate project. She just did that as a thing all the time. You know, when she heard somebody talking at a problem, it went on their, on their little sheet. When she heard about the, the measures, it went on a little sheet. When when she kind of had no idea what metrics are being used to judge the success of this person she had a you know she went off found out um that wasn't a separate project that was a background task because you know it helped her uh, and so she kept doing that work all the time i like that idea of, of almost almost micro research where yes. you know people when you hear the word research people assume huge project you know i've got to do this is going to be a big survey or something like that therefore it has to be enormous Therefore, I have to create a huge survey instrument. Therefore, everybody has to review it. And you inevitably end up doing it only once a year. Um, yeah. But with the technology, especially because you're reaching internal employees where you're not having to pay for respondents, there's no reason why you can't do a very short survey with a couple of questions or just do a, a, a user test, an experience research test, where you ask three or four people to respond to something. And then it's not it's not big setup. You can do it really frequently. It's not a big pain in the neck to look at the results because you're only watching a couple of videos. Um, and you can make it, if you think of it as feedback that you can do incrementally over time, that reduces some of the burden. Um, it makes yeah. it easier to get into it. Um, so w when we've done this stuff internally at user testing, it's usually been our own uh, people team who've run this. Do you have thoughts on, is it is it good for the people team to be doing this themselves or should they be bringing in somebody else? How should they look at that? Um, I think it kind of depends on the research question and, and, and what people are trying to find out and why. Um, I mean, my biases are, are kind of aggressively cross-functional. I, I want to work with the people who are closest to the problem. Uh, whether they have research in their job title or not, um, and pair them with somebody who has more direct research experience if necessary. Um, for example, I once worked with a company that had a um, a retention recruitment problem with their product managers. Um, new product managers were not happy when they were hired and were leaving quickly. Existing product managers who were performing well suddenly started performing really badly when they switched teams inside the organization and then left and, and a bunch of other things and what we did with that is we kind of i worked with the the hr business partner there um and we observed a bunch of product managers inside the org and we did some surveys like the little short one that you talked about michael um around working practices and skills and, and did some interviews as well and what we found out of that was that there were basically three, quite, it was quite a large org, um, and there were kind of three radically different roles under the product manager title. Some were very much subject matter experts, some were doing more kind of project manager stuff, and some were doing, um, you know, proper product management with lots of discovery and hypothesis testing and all that kind of work. And unsurprisingly, when 
one type moved into a different team that was expecting another type of work they did badly and when you hired someone who was good at product management and put them in as a subject matter expert they did badly um and so we could start seeing the root cause of that and because we worked with the hr business partner during that whole process they'd, they'd seen all this stuff and could really easily see we didn't have to write a report you know or anything we could just move straight on to okay there are three different roles here and there's all oh, there's a couple of different levels of seniority that we're not actually capturing in our recruiting and we need to be recruiting for different people here um and you know we could move directly to solving the problem and testing those solutions out rather than having to kind of you know argue the points about the, the research work Oh, that's really resonating for me. The different the different roles of product management and how people can get crossed up between those things. Um, I see that all the time. That's a really great insight. Um, so, for doing these sorts of work, do you have thoughts on or, or advice on methodology? You know, people tend to obsess on uh, quantitative versus versus qualitative numbers versus getting people to talk about their thoughts and feelings. Any guidance on when to use what? Oh, a classic consultant answer of, of, of it depends. Um, <laughs> we're like, when, if you're doing generative research focused mostly on the people, then you're probably going to be leaning more towards the, the, the qualitative stuff. Um, if you're doing mostly evaluative work around solutions and systems, then you're probably going to be leaning more to the quant. Um, but, you know, I guess the thing I see, which is weird because it's it's the kind of thing that user research people rail against. Um, I, I often see people overlooking the smaller scale qualitative approaches in favor of things like surveys and neglecting observation in favor of some kind of self-reporting. Um, and approaching all your workplace meetings and activities um, and occasionally wearing your ethnographer hat to that rather than your participant yeah member of the company hat you can you can start seeing um, really interesting things that I think are harder to capture with some of the the quant stuff so saying that the quant stuff is bad or invalid it's really useful for some some it's really useful for many situations um, but there's many other places where something smaller scale is going to get you some value. Um, I work with a client who was having trouble getting strategic direction from a company founder. And their assumption was that this was a very tech focused founder who had founded the company by building the thing and was, and that, that was the, the mindset of this person that they were a build, build, build type person. Um, and so he was trying to sell to this founder the kind of the value of strategy and it wasn't working. And what happened after he did something a little bit more kind of discovery interviewee-ish, um, you know, he, he, you know, he talked to him about the, you know, the, what, what was happening in his week and what he was doing and what they were trying to do and had similar conversations with other people in the exec. And the number one thing that came out for that founder was fear. Um, like he was scared of doing the strategy work because the, 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 like, it's like, what if I get it wrong? And this is the first time I'm doing this stuff where we're now in markets that I'm not familiar with and I don't quite understand how to do this. Second issue was lack of time. You know, I've, I've got 300 other things I'm supposed to be doing right now. 
um, and I can't focus on the strategy work. And the, the, the third issue was not so much not understanding the value of strategy. They had quite a good understanding of the value of strategy. Um, they had quite a bad understanding of what does the rest of the organization need from me to execute on that. So those were very different from the tech-focused guy who wants to build assumption that this person had coming in once it had those 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 smaller scale qualitative conversations, which led them to doing kind of designing a workshop with him and a couple of other people from the exec as a collaborative thing, which helped get over the fear and understanding problems. And then they, I mean, you can't really call it an offsite because it was all remote, but they, they kind of blocked off a chunk of time and made very certain that all other founder obligations are being offloaded to other people in the organization during that time. So they had some focus time on it. Uh, and so once they understood the, the fear, understanding and time problems, they could solve them. Um, um, when before they were trying to, you know, I'm telling you strategy is a really good thing and you should do it, um, which wasn't working. That's like exercising. Yeah. I, I know it's really good, but I don't have time. Thank you very much. Um, that's fascinating. The best conference to help brands launch the most compelling digital experiences returns. We hope to see you at our annual customer conference, the Human Insights Summit, when it takes over Seattle this August. Get a chance to learn from and network with the best minds in research, design, product, and marketing across the globe. More than 400 attendees will take over Seattle to learn, connect, and have fun. Join us for three days that will change how you use human insight to create exceptional customer experiences. Don't miss this 2023 live in person and streaming globally. Register at usertesting.com slash this. So, so Adrian, um, in prep for our interview, I was looking at your, your LinkedIn profile, which is really cool. And I noticed you've got a degree in computer science and artificial intelligence. And I, I deeply respect that you did that before it was the sexy, trendy thing for everybody to do. So, so as a longtime observer of the field, I just, I wanted to know, what are your, what are your thoughts on, can AI-based research be applied uh, to this sort of stuff? If so, how, what would you, and, and do you have any cautions on what to watch out for? Oh, I guess in, in two words, my thoughts are skeptical and grumpy. Um, we're in, we're in peak hype mode for AI as a discipline right now. And, and AI, unfortunately, has got a rather unhealthy history of overhype and overselling of abilities followed by a crash. Um, you, you, you say I, I didn't do my, uh, you know, I did do my AI degree in kind of the latter half of the last century now, for God's sake. Um, but at that point, it was a cool thing at that point where we were just hitting a new AI winter. If you go ask Wikipedia about AI winters, um, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you the, the nice little history tale of, of AI overselling itself and then crashing. Uh, and my hunch is we'll all be having another crash in, in the next few years. Um, I mean, this is an entire separate episode of the podcast, but um, from my point of view, there's two big issues. There's, there's, there's overselling what the current batch of technologies actually do. Um, the idea of, and people have actually asked me about this, so it's, it's distressing. Um, the idea of asking a large language model like ChatBTT to answer research questions is just laughable if you understand what is under the hood. And what is under the hood is being missold, as far as I'm concerned. And separate to that, 
second issue is that the broader ethical, legal, regulatory issues around training data, training activities, the, the hidden groups and costs that make these sort of systems possible and the copyright implications of what comes out of them. And they're going to be entertaining legal fights about that for the next decade or so. And you're already seeing kind of attempts at regulatory capture and stuff like that from, from my somewhat biased point of view. Um, there, there's a paper called um, On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots, and that's a great read if you want to dig into some of the issues with large language models in more detail. And in general, I'd, I'd urge folk to add a few more of the skeptical voices to the ones that seem to be loudest in the field right now. Um, pay attention to people like um, Abiba Barani, uh, Emily Bender, Timnit Grebnew, that they're all worth a follow. They're hugely knowledgeable and, and they're, they're talking about all the things the, the venture capitalists are not talking about. Nice. Thank you. Nathan, I want that, I want that other podcast episode as well, just as an aside. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll provide links to all those things that Adrian just mentioned in the show notes as well. Adrian, uh, thank you for being on the show today. If someone wants to learn more about you and what you're doing, where should they go? Uh, go to quietstars.com and subscribe to the newsletter there. It's been running for more than 10 years now, so, so the archives are worth exploring. Um, I'm also Adrian H. on most social media channels, including LinkedIn and Mastodon.social. So feel free to say hi there or just email Adrian H. at quietstars.com. Excellent. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find the show notes at usertesting.com slash podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, this is Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from user testing.